John chapter 1. John 1, beginning in verse 19, and we'll read through verse 37, but focusing just on one verse, verse 29. Once again, this is God's holy word. Please give your attention to its reading. He gives it to us as people for our good. John 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray once more. So great and heavenly Father, gracious God, we ask that you would speak now through your word by your grace. Open our minds, ears, and hearts to all you would have for us. May you alone be glorified and exalted through the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, it is indeed always a a special time to gather around uh, the table of the Lord during this season. We have all kinds of considerations that uh, we have running through our minds. We're obviously uh, many of us focusing at this time of the year, especially on the birth of Christ. And we can focus on that any time of the year, by the way. It's not just because it's starting to get cold that we do that, uh, but it never is a bad thing to give our attention to the incarnation and the work of Jesus Christ for us. So this indeed is a a Sunday many of us look forward to. It's an important uh, reminder as we gather around the table of the Lord that uh, this season is, is not just kind of the, uh, the sort of things that we, we look to about birth in a human way. The, the, the cute baby and how wonderful infants are and the gift of God as creator. Uh, but indeed, all that we think about relative to the incarnation ought to bring our attention forward to Jesus' life lived, the death that he died, his suffering, and indeed his his resurrection. 
And so the, the happy birthday Jesus mentality is insufficient uh, as we come into this part of the year because Jesus is the eternal one. He's, he's the preexistent one. He is himself very God. And so his, his preexistence is something that it, it far outstrips the idea of just merely one earthly life. And so we must have a much more robust accounting of what the birth in the manger means. Nails and spears shall pierce him through, as we just sang. His birth thrusts our attention forward to his suffering and his death. When a child is born, what do parents do? You, you go to the Lord, you pray earnestly that this child w- would not experience uh, intense suffering throughout his or her life, that God would, would be gracious and, and grant peace and, and a wonderful, blessed life, certainly, certainly spiritual uh, awakening as well. But we pray that God would keep our children safe and, and, and healthy and, and strong. But Jesus was born to suffer. That's why he was born. And so we have to take a more, a fuller view of, of all of these things. This is wonderfully illustrated in Handel's Messiah, of course, and the title of our sermon is one of the the more famous choruses in Handel's Messiah. Uh, If you take a a cursory look at at Christmas, Handel's Messiah would really begin, end after part one, wouldn't it? That's really the the Christmas story, part one. But parts two and three, there's not just one additional part, there's two additional parts. The work of redemption, the celebration of victory over death, that's what the incarnation, the birth of Christ, really uh, brings us to. The incarnation is a means of redemption, of accomplished and enjoyed. The shepherds, the magi, beheld the Christ. He was a, a mysterious king, and there were things that they didn't quite understand, but they came in, in wonder and awe and worship. We look to Christ now. We see not just a mysterious king. We see prophet, priest, and king, but we see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So let's consider these things as we prepare to come to the table. John says, Behold, Behold, now in, in, in Hebrew, you, experience, you encounter that in the Old Testament, it's kind of, stop, look at this, don't miss it. The word in Hebrew is hine, and you're kind of taught when you see that, stop, make sure you notice what they're wanting you to see. Behold, don't miss this. What is he not wanting you to miss? John is not wanting the people who hear him to miss the importance of this person, Jesus Christ drawing attention to him. Notice John's emphasis there and what he's trying to do. Now, we think about this, the, the, the same earnestness that John had in his day, we as God's people, as Christians, are to have in our day. Right? The need for Christ in our day is no less just because he's no longer on earth according to his human nature. And so John here gives a, a good example for us all a good pattern for us to follow. What is that pattern? Well, in all things, we are to humble ourselves and exalt the Lord Jesus. Later on in chapter 3, John says what? He must increase and I must decrease. William Still, a Presbyterian pastor, said the only real calling in life for all of us, the only real calling is pointing to Jesus. That that is the purpose of life, that is the greatest calling that we all have. No matter what we do on a daily basis, our vocations, our various different things that we do in our lives, the real calling that God gives to all of us is pointing to Jesus, the way that we live our lives, in our faith, the way that we want to 
uh, honor him and glorify him in all that we do. That's what we are called to do. John says, behold, calling attention to Jesus. In a similar way, we all are to call attention to Jesus. But why? Why should John point to him? Why why should we point to him? Why is it such a blessed thing to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, think about the benefits that flow forth from his person and his work. We considered various prophecies last week, or Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. The only true comfort that we can have in life comes from this Jesus, from this person. Comfort, comfort ye my people. What's the comfort? The comfort of knowing God and being reconciled to him through the Messiah. Isaiah 35 and various other prophecies in Isaiah talk about the the wilderness, the, the desert blossoming and springing forth with green life. That's what the Messiah will do. He will take something that it's dead and barren and cause it to flourish with an abundance of life. The desert will blossom just as the rose. Uh, Elsewhere in Isaiah, he came to give sight to the blind and life to the dead, to set the captives free, to loose the heavy burdens, to give rest to the weary. All of those things, we would all say, we, we want that. If this is what the Messiah does, then you better behold him. You better notice him. You better take note of who he is and what he does. And the call to give yourself to him. So do you behold him? Do you notice the exceptional nature of the Savior. He walks by and John realizes this is the one. He says, behold the Lamb of God. Don't miss him. The same calling is there for us today, brothers and sisters. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss the importance of making him central to your life and your heart and your worship. Don't miss the calling of what it means to give him all that you are and all that you have because of the wonderful nature of the things he gives to his own. In order to behold him, you must know who he is and what he does. Who is he? He's the Lamb of God. What does he do? He takes away the sin of the world. So let's consider those things for a few moments now. He's the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. When you see here the the invoking of the picture of a lamb, we think of atonement. Two examples in the Old Testament, Exodus 29, there was a, a daily Sacrifice at the tent of meeting in the wilderness. Uh, Exodus 29 lays this out for us. In the morning and the evening, they were to sacrifice a lamb at the tent of meeting. And the meaning of that sacrifice is that God comes to meet with his people. And he can meet with his people there. But there must be blood shed on behalf of the uncleanness, the impurity of the people. And it was a daily thing. It was constant Offering these lambs a year old, morning and evening, day after day after day, so that God might commune with his people, so that he might meet with them. There needs to be something that covers the Israelites so that God might come to them in covenant fellowship. The picture of the lamb also reminds us, of course, of the Passover. And there's allusion made there, too. Jesus is called our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so that picture is there for us as well. The angel of death passes over the homes that are covered where the doorposts are covered by the blood of the lamb. Because of Jesus, we escape the wrath of God. Because of Jesus, we escape the curse of death and condemnation that is to be poured out on sinners. 
Uh, a lamb signifies meekness, doesn't it? Lambs basically have to go where they're directed. They're stubborn animals, but when you kind of make them go somewhere, they go where they're directed. Especially at the day of their death, we read in Isaiah 53, like a lamb led to the, to the slaughter. Now, this is the one who will be led. There's a, there's a meekness. If we take away the consideration of Christ as eternal God, we, we see a, a lamb and almost a helplessness there, right? But that, of course, does not describe our Jesus in totality. He is the Lamb of God, but rather his meekness invokes awe and wonder and worship because we are to keep in mind all that he is. Right? He is the, the Lamb of God, but that is not the, the, the totality of how you would describe him. It doesn't even come close. He is born an infant, and yet he is infinite. He is eternal, and yet he comes to bear a body in time. He's almighty. He possesses all power, and yet his mother feeds him. He supports the universe, and yet he needs to be carried in Mary's arms. He's the heir of all things, and he's the son of a modest carpenter. Considering all of these things, uh, Pastor Charles Spurgeon says, Wonderful are you, O Jesus, and that shall be thy name forever. Just considering his nature, his eternality, who he is, to take on a human body and soul, a true human nature, invokes awe and wonder. So don't be mistaken. When we think of him as the Lamb of God, he is being led to the slaughter, but he's giving himself willingly. He lays down his own life. He's a lamb, but he possesses all power. So the meekness and the power come together in that picture. He's also the Lamb of God. That means he's God's Lamb. He's God's Lamb, appointed by God, Romans 3, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God gave him, he appointed him to go and do this work. This is no mistake. He was devoted to God as God's Lamb. John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do all that Jesus did, he did in devotion to his Father. He was appointed by God. He was devoted to God. He was accepted with God. Hebrews 9 lays this out. Christ entered into the holy places, not, uh, not made with hands, into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And he, pre he presents his work, and his work is accepted. So do you behold the Lamb of God? He's a lamb, but a glorious lamb. He's God's lamb. He's appointed by him, devoted to him, accepted with him. Behold, the lamb of God. That's who he is, at least a small description of who he is. But what does he do? He takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. The easy yoke and light burden of Christ does not come freely and easily. It's free to us. It's free to us, isn't it? Salvation, grace, comes freely to us, but it costs Jesus dearly. Messiah, in Handel's Messiah, you kind of see this in, in, in a beautiful way. And, and you see all the, the pictures of that great peace uh, when, you, when you take a step back and you consider it. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. That, that chorus has a lightness to it, doesn't it? 
His yoke is easy, his burden is light. It's kind of this beautiful, uh, comforting melody. And it ends kind of in this glorious way too. And, and it shows just how wonderful it is to be known and to be represented by the Redeemer, by the Messiah. Because of all that he has done, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Unlike anything else that you would experience in the universe. But then the, the, the feeling of the music changes drastically. That chorus, behold the Lamb of God. There's a, there's a heaviness to it. Right from the, the light feeling, the airy feeling of the blessedness of his light burden. And then behold the Lamb of God. You see, the work of Christ as it's known to him is weighty, serious. It is sorrowful, isn't it? He is the man of sorrows, as we read in Isaiah chapter 53. Sins are not going to be taken away absent a very serious work of righteousness and substitution. The night of Gethsemane in the Gospel of Matthew, we read this in Matthew 26. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. It's easy to glance over these passages, isn't it, in in the gospel. But do we consider, do we take time to consider, here you have eternal God the Son, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were made. And he ends up in this garden. And he says to his friends, his closest friends, I'm very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. That he has to let his closest friends know about this. He has to tell them. He was so sorrowful that the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power was so filled with sorrow that night that he told his friends, the one who needs no help. Astonishing. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will before the mercy of God can actually be dispensed to sinners. The rights of God's justice, the demands of his law, the honor of his government must be provided for. Would would Christ have been sent to suffer in such a way if there were any other way? He takes away sins, and that's done through the painful, agonizing, sorrowful, relentless work of the Savior. God will by no means clear the guilty. He doesn't just wash, he washes sins away through the blood of Christ. He doesn't just erase them for no reason. He bears sin for us and then he bears it from us. So you have there uh, the the picture of the, the day of atonement, the goat who bears the iniquities and walks off to a remote area and goes free into the wilderness, right? Letting that, uh, those sins be carried away. Micah chapter 7 says God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, right? The, the, the deepest place of earth. 
deeper than anyone will ever be able to go. That is where God casts your sins because of Christ. As far as east is from the west, which is infinite, right? The, the, the point is there that, that as, as far as they could possibly be separated, God has separated your sins from you because of the Lamb of God, because He takes away the sins of the world. Not only does He take away sins, He takes away the sins of the world. He was sent to Israel, but he came to have a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So we read about this in 1 John chapter 2. He's the propitiation for our sins. And there John is speaking in a very Jewish way. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The beautiful account in John chapter 12. Some Greeks come to see Jesus. And it's right after this that Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to to go and do his work, to, to finish his work, which tells us something about Jesus' own understanding and mentality of his substitutionary work. When Gentiles were coming to see him, then he knows it is time. But some Greeks come to see Jesus and Philip. Uh, they come to Philip and they ask him, Sir, we would see Jesus. We would see Jesus. He's the Savior, uh, not just of Israel, the Savior of the world. And that's good news for us this morning, isn't it? So think about this then as we bring this to a close. If Jesus is the Savior of the world, if he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, can't he save you? If he takes away the sin of the world, can't he save you? Do not come this close to Jesus Christ and miss him. It's not sufficient for you to assent to the idea that Jesus Christ is someone who can save some people. You must find your salvation in Jesus. You must make him your refuge. He is powerful enough not just to forgive some sins, to forgive your sins. And you need to trust in him from your heart. And this faith must be founded upon that very spirit that you see in John, in in John chapter 1. It points towards Jesus, and all of its focus is upon him. That is what faith is. It looks outward. So perhaps you hold back from ever coming to Jesus, or perhaps you have been trusting in Jesus, at least in in your own heart, so you believe you have, and that can be very genuine, but you still have questions of whether Jesus can actually save you. Maybe your sins hold you back from coming to Christ in the first place. Or maybe you have trusted in Christ, but you still struggle with wondering, can God actually forgive me? If you wonder either of those things, I'd like to focus with me just for a moment this morning. He's powerful enough to be the Savior of the world. So he's powerful enough to save you. Matthew Henry says, if Christ takes away the sins of the world then why not my sin? The Westminster Confession says that just as there is no sin so small that it does not require God's wrath, so there is no sin so great that it can bring condemnation on those who truly repent. There is no sin so great that it can bring condemnation on those who truly repent. So come to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Trust in Him. Repent of your sin. Find your refuge in Him. Find your salvation in Him. Find comfort in Him. For who is He? He's the Lamb of God. What does He do? He takes away the sins of the world. 
There's more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. Your sin cannot overpower the grace of God. I assure you of that. If you have trouble taking comfort in the idea of the forgiveness of sin, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Come to Him. Salvation, ultimately, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about any of us. It's about Jesus Christ and what He has done for sin and for sinners on behalf of them. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Come to the Lamb in faith and trust and repentance and reliance. He casts your sins into the heart of the sea. He bears them away. He throws them into the depths of the ocean. There is plentiful forgiveness with Him. There is redemption that is found in Him and in Him alone. The exclusivity of Christ is here in this passage too, isn't it? John says, behold the Lamb of God, because there is nowhere else you can go to find this forgiveness. The disciples follow him when they hear what John says. This is the Lamb of God. Because of who Jesus is, it it means that we must follow him. We must give our lives to him. In faith and trust and reliance, he takes away your sin. He clears you of its guilt. He frees you from its power. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you and we praise you. We ask that you would be with us now as we gather around the table. We thank you for Christ and the forgiveness that we find with him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.